Welcome to another episode of the Rain Race Podcast. Today, myself and Joe Donahue are going to be discussing the latest LMDH developments from Audi and Porsche. We're going to be recapping the GMR Grand Prix, first day of Indianapolis 500 practice, and the IMSA WeatherTech race at Mid-Ohio. And we're going to round it all off with some Indy 500 qualifying and Monaco Grand Prix predictions. Enjoy. Good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening. Welcome to another episode of the Rain Race Podcast. Starting off a couple minutes late here because just before we started this episode, I unintentionally dumped uh, like a quarter gallon of water right on my desk with all my computer stuff. It's uh, not really a good situation, but everything is still in functional condition, which is good. Um, just became a little bit of a mess to clean up. Anyways, finally, three minutes late on the road here. And I got a treat for you guys, uh, because today I'm joined, well, depends how you want to look at this. I don't want to say it's a treat, maybe we'll offend Kyle. Uh, Kyle's not here today, he is over in Indianapolis. Um, might be in the same situation next week, and, or next week as well. Uh, so, as my super sub, I've brought in my good friend, Joe Donahue. Joe, why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself? Well, um, hello, everybody. My name's Joe Donahue. I was on the Rain Race podcast one time before, and I talked for way too long about engineering, so I'm going to try not to do that. And um, I've helped Kyle make content before and picked up some pieces of stuff. So I'm excited. I like the Rain Race podcast. I listen to it when I drive back and forth to college, and I'm just uh, happy to be here. Sure. Good stuff. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned Possibly next week, uh, Kyle will be joining us. It just depends. Everything's sort of uh, minute by minute while he's over there. So there's a chance we'll have Joe here next weekend. Or next, that's the second time I said weekend. Next week as well. Um, primary interest for Joe, lie with IndyCar. So a lot of dirt racing stuff. Unfortunately, we don't cover a lot of dirt racing stuff on this podcast because I'm not too into it, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, hopefully... He, uh, not hopefully, I know he'll be a great addition to this episode. And uh, Joe, you'll never bore us with your engineering discussion. Perhaps some people in the chat will have some questions about that stuff uh, as well. Now, first thing I want to talk about in this episode is uh, LMDH. We have a couple of developments coming out of that front over the last couple of weeks. By the way, I do have to say as well that once again, we missed a week. Um, now, again, don't want to throw him under the bus, but last Monday... I had planned on doing an episode with Kyle, and um, he said that he wasn't going to be able to make it, so we had to call off last week's episode, um, and then wanted to do this one yesterday. Unfortunately, Kyle wasn't available yesterday. Joe wasn't available yesterday. So once again, uh, another Tuesday night episode. Um, keep saying Monday. We're going to be doing these episodes. I feel like it's been more oftentimes not Monday than it has been Monday. Uh, but obviously that is the goal to try to keep it on that Monday schedule. But do stay tuned to our Twitter, which is at Rain Race Podcast. We'll be posting all the updates over there. And then on my Discord as well. The link to that is on my channel banner. I don't really have any other great places to add that right now. Perhaps I can add it in the chat in a couple minutes here. Um, and I'll throw a link to Joe's YouTube channel as well. So, LMDH couple of things I want to talk about here. First thing I want to talk about is that Multimatic was confirmed as the chassis supplier for both the Audi and Porsche LMDH programs. Now, Multimatic right now is the effort behind the Mazda Motorsports DPI effort. Um, they've found quite a lot of success over the last couple of seasons with that transition to Yoast 
and now it is run entirely by Multimatic. Um, so obviously I think that that's pretty optimistic. Um, there are a couple questions that I sort of have to ask on that front, uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. Joe, I know it's not entirely your, uh, well, let's say, forte sports car racing. I mean, I know you're into it, but do you have any initial impressions from this announcement? Well, I think it's really interesting and cool that Porsche and Audi are willing to come out of the gates and admit that they're both working with Multimatic. I think, obviously, Porsche and Audi are both Volkswagen brands, so they are affiliated. But, you know, in, in the, the racing world, even a couple of years ago, Audi and Porsche were neck and neck and big rivals at Le Mans at each year to win overall. But I think that's really cool. And obviously, we know Multimatic is very reliable and respected in the sports car world. They... As you said, they work with Mazda in IMSA. They've worked in the past with Chip Ganassi Racing and Ford to run the uh, Ford GT program over in Europe with those two Ford GTs that raced under Chip Ganassi Racing UK. That was just Multimatic, more or less. And obviously, also Multimatic just has a lot of uh, private history in its own right in the world of sports car racing. So I think it's a really great way to pair up a company that has a lot of experience and a lot of data, especially from recent years with the Ford GT and now the Mazdas, that they can apply that to companies like Audi and Ford as they trek into this new field of what the FIA has deemed for the lead cars at Le Mans. And come 2023, I think that's definitely going to pay off for Porsche and Audi to be in this partnership. Yeah, okay. So one of the things you pointed out there, first thing you pointed out, and that's exactly what I want to talk about, is that you look back to 2016 was the most recent year we had Audi and Porsche on the same track in a prototype class racing against each other. Uh, well, now for this new LMDH formula, they are going to be sharing these same chassis. Now, there's been some speculation over the past weeks, months, um, as to how similar these programs are going to be. Now, I've seen it go even as far as saying same chassis, even same engine between the two cars. Um, I don't think it's going to go quite that far, but I have heard that brought up in the past. Um, now, from a fan perspective, I think that, you know, the, the more different, the more, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? The more uh, diverse or, or sort of different that these cars are from each other, the more interesting it's going to be from a fan perspective, because what the fans want to see is, okay, you had this insane rivalry that lasted from 2014 to 2016 Everybody wants to see a continuation of that. I mean, Audi's announcement uh, that they were pulling out of LMP1 was very sudden. Um, I believe we were, it was late September uh, when they had just said, okay, at the end of the season, we're done. We're pulling the plug. No more from us. You know, at Le Mans 2016, I don't think anybody was expecting that that was going to be Audi's final run at Le Mans in the LMP1 class. Um, and a lot of people want to see a, a continuance of that rivalry. And not just Porsche as well. You see that uh, Peugeot is coming back. A lot of people want to see the Audi and Peugeot rivalry continue as well. Um, so just from a fan perspective, I think that a lot of people want those two cars to be different. Now, in terms of engine rumors, I've heard that Porsche has been looking at the, I think it's a twin turbocharged V8 from the Porsche Cayenne SUV. Now, the interesting thing about that is that Porsche actually ran a Cayenne V8 derived engine with their old uh, Grand Am Daytona prototype back in what, 10 years ago. Um, actually, they ran the flat six first, and then they switched it over to a V8. Um, 
So sort of like a turning back the clocks a little bit if they end up going with that decision. And then Audi has been pretty vocal, I think, about trying to use their turbocharged inline four from DTM. Now, unfortunately, they were only able to use that for two seasons, I believe, um, before DTM went to GT3. I'm trying to remember when they introduced the four-cylinder formula. I think it was 2020, uh, 2019? Yes, that is okay. correct. All right. Yep. So, yeah, Audi put a lot of research and development into that engine, didn't end up using it a whole lot, so I think logically it makes sense for them to use that engine. Uh, similar to what Mazda has been using in... Uh, IMSA over the past couple of years with the Daytona Prototype International Program. Now, the inline four had a lot of problems early on for Mazda. Seems like in recent years, um, especially in 2020 and 2019, the kinks with that engine, especially in endurance races, got ironed out a little bit. Um, but I want to hear your take on that as well. I mean, I just sort of mentioned that from a fan perspective, you want these cars to be as diverse as possible. What are your opinions on that? Well, I would agree with that. I mean, certainly, I, I'm a big Porsche fan, and I know a couple are large Audi fans as well. We don't want to see the same car out on track, you know, between Audi and Porsche. But at the same time, on top of the, the fan perspective, you got to think about the manufacturer perspective. Do does the Volkswagen Group really want two different marks out on track accomplishing the same things? You talk about the types of engines these guys are looking at putting in these cars: the the inline V4, which was or I4 inline means i but the audi engine from dtm which was a super engine that that series was really awesome when they introduced those turbos back in 2019 and then you look at porsche obviously they're we're kind of progressively working slowly but surely whether you like it or not into a world where suvs are kind of more the common car to have the common road car for regular people like you and me and so if you want to integrate the progression that we're trying to we're trying to work the technology we have in road cars forward. That's that is sort of the ultimate goal of motorsports on top of obviously the excitement of winning Le Mans and the notoriety of being a part of the series. So if we're going to work towards working on those sort of things, the, the technology that these cars are trying to progress in smaller, large amounts, um, that's something that you got to think about if they're going to have different engines, which obviously my reaction would be, I would definitely think they should have different, different engines and I would expect them to be different. Cause like I said, I'm expecting they're kind of trying to get their feet wet in some new technology and see what might work and what they can obviously then put in the Audis and Porsches on the road and sell those cars. Cause if nobody buys those cars, nobody's going to be able to pay for this LMDH program. So I think that's a really important part of, Porsche versus Audi thing and maybe using the same chassis will kind of narrow in on the differences they can make under the hood between those two cars and and what's going to be able to help cars on the road moving forward and what's going to also obviously help their future prototypes that they bring back years and years after 2023 to actually win the 24 hours of Le Mans in the long-term future on top of just that race when they return. Right, and sort of going off what you just said there, Gam Wolfers put in the chat, what's cool about this deal is that they can definitely take notes off of each other. Um, especially in terms of the chassis, yeah, I agree with that 100%. As you had said, Joe, Porsche and Audi are both under that VW branch. Um, it's pretty obvious that, you know, LMDH is very appealing to Porsche and to Audi, and more over that to Volkswagen, um, because of how cheap and 
affordable it is. Um, I think that, you know, maybe some hypercar programs might have been evaluated from both of those manufacturers. Ultimately, you're talking about a formula that's much more expensive, relies on a much more um, R&D focused program, uh, whereas LMDH is really just the same formula that we have with DPI right now, where you take an LMP2 chassis, put a hybrid system in it, which is the main new thing, and uh, bring it on track. So, yeah, I definitely see that there is an appeal for Volkswagen. You know, they can, I'm sure that they probably struck a deal with Multimatic that saved them a little bit of money in the long run just by having one chassis for both manufacturers. Now, I actually found it pretty interesting in its own that we even have Porsche and Audi competing against each other. I think that in 2014, when Porsche made their return to LMP1, um, you know, it, it did surprise quite a few people that it was even there. Um, because, you know, if you looked at what Audi was doing for the past decade or so, they were really just taking a lot of Porsche drivers over to Le Mans and, uh, sort of treating Porsche drivers as Audi drivers for that one race. And it was sort of just VW's effort as much as it was Audi's effort. So I think a lot of people were surprised when Porsche jumped in to compete there. I was a little bit surprised when we saw how early Porsche jumped on for this one, um, Actually, trying to remember. Yeah, so Audi was announced first for LMDH, and then Porsche was announced, I want to say, a month or so after. Um, so, yeah, it came as a little bit of a surprise to me, but as I'm sure it's obvious to many people, this is, and as I just said, this is appealing to Volkswagen and to both of those manufacturers because of how affordable it is in the long run. Now, another thing that we heard out of Porsche's LMDH program is that Team Penske will be returning to prototype racing. I don't want to say, ret- I mean, they just departed last year, really. Um, but returning to prototype racing, and more importantly, returning to Porsche for the first time since 2008 with the RS Spider program, they're going to be taking over the LMDH effort in both the IMSA WeatherTech Championship and in the FIA World Endurance Championship, which there you go, that includes the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Penske at Le Mans for the first time as a team I know that this one's been very high up on Roger's bucket list. It's the one huge race that he hasn't won yet. And I think setting himself up in a Porsche LMDH seat, uh, really an optimal place, I think, for him as a team owner. Uh, Joe, do you have any opinions on that one right there? Well, that's obviously really great news. I mean, you mentioned the Porsche RS Spiders, those uh, yellow and red cars from the American Le Mans series, not too long ago, but outside of 10 years ago. And then even if you look at the far past of Roger Penske in racing, I mean, he started off his his ownership career with Porsches on hand very often. You look back at Mark Donahue drove the Porsche 917-30, the Can-Am killer, as they called it in the Can-Am series. And Roger had owned other Porsches in the Can-Am series at that time. He took a couple of them out in, in offhand sports car series and then obviously... Roger slowly moved into the open, slowly moved into the open wheel world. I say slowly, but not really. It was not not too long, but obviously took Mark Donahue to the Indy 500, took Mark Donahue to F1, and then Donahue unfortunately lost his life. Then we had a couple more guys in F1, and obviously he's also stayed in IndyCar since they first brought the Sunoco-sponsored cars to the Speedway. So obviously to... Roger Penske and Porsche back together, not just 
looking at American Lamar series, but looking into the far past of Roger Penske, that's really cool and really exciting. I'd love to see some cool little throwbacks from that. And then, like you mentioned, Porsche and Penske, two brands and groups that are just fit for success. They they take nothing short of the best that they can do. And Roger's out for success everywhere he goes. So does Porsche. And I think that's that's a dangerous combination when you take all those groups of people that over at Porsche are willing to do and spend whatever they have to to be at the front. And then Roger Penske doing the same. That's definitely going to be one to watch and see how quickly they can get up to the front when they get those cars out on track. Right. 100 percent agree with what you just said there. Um, now, we had talked a little bit in the past. Now, actually, I'm trying to remember. Was Did we do that Penske announcement in the last episode? I'm trying to even remember what Kyle and I had done. Um, I think I think we actually had talked about that in the last episode. I can't remember if it was still in the, the heavily rumored section at that point or the confirmed section, uh, because like I said, we did take an off week. But um, Kyle and I had talked about driver lineups for that program as well. Uh, the name Juan Pablo Montoya gets thrown around a lot. Now Montoya is going to be, I think, around 50 uh, when that program starts up in 2023. Uh, Kyle and I briefly, I remember talking about this in the last episode. Um, you know, perhaps we'd see Montoya, maybe, but I wouldn't see it. I wouldn't consider it entirely likely, perhaps as, a th- as you know, an additional driver similar to what um, Nico Hulkenberg was able to do in 2015 depends if they even have a third car or, you know there's a lot of variables at play there i think a lot of people want to see montoya in a top class prototype seat at lamont because he is as close as fernando alonso will be to getting the triple crown in fact i'd say he's even a little bit closer because i think if you put yourself in the right seat it is easier to win lamont i want to say that very cautiously because winning lamont obviously is no easy feat um but i think that if you are able to situate yourself in a proper seat that's very competitive like Alonso was able to with Toyota, that you're really giving yourself a good chance to win that race because compared to Indianapolis where, you know, you have a race that you have 33 drivers and 25 of them really can be in contention for it. Um, Just an overall much more competitive race in terms of raw pace-wise. Now, Porsche and Audi have both said as well that they are anticipating both programs being customer-based, heavily customer-based in terms of Audi. Uh, Audi referenced specifically what they were able to do with the R8 program from 2000 to 2005, um, where you have Audi Sport Team Yoast, and they also had a handful of customer entries. And Orica had an Audi R8 back in the day. They had Audi Sport UK. Um, I mean, there's just a handful of teams. Champion Racing actually went up against the Bentleys, in 2003 and um looks like audi's trying to do a repeat of that as well with the lmdh program now i think that that's fantastic news one of the things i've been a little bit disappointed with in dpi honestly is that apart from cadillac it hasn't been as customer focused as it was sort of hyped up to be um obviously with the class itself being very affordable it was really sort of hyped as this big customer focused class and it seems like we were going to reach that point in 2017 2018 when we had a lot of teams that we don't have nowadays um but in recent years we've seen 
sort of factory teams. You know, Penske was with Acura as a factory team. We didn't have any other Acuras in the field up until this season. Um, there has been no customer Mazda since the inception of the program in 2017. Now, I'm hoping LMDH can turn the tides on that a little bit because customer teams, obviously, they bring the car counts up and they bring a lot of interest into the race as well, especially with some of the drivers that they're able to pull in. Um, Joe, do you have any opinions on that as well? Well, I've always I've thought recently that IMSA kind of fell off on having customer-based groups of cars and customer-based classes. I think, obviously, GTD at its main inception was kind of meant to be that class for a long time. It, it was that class, but then you started having the Lexus program and then Acura started backing some teams and it's just kind of slowly moved GTD into being sort of led by um, cars that were ba backed by the manufacturers. And while there are still some really great representations in that class of customer teams, you, you mentioned DPI, same deal. We're sort of getting there with the Acuras, at least now that Wayne Taylor Racing moved over but um, and has been successful with that car already this year. Uh, Cadillac's always been pretty good with that. And, you know, there's respect there for Cadillac's being cars that are owned by Action Express, Chip Ganassi, you know, multiple teams over the course of the years, even back to JDC and Hoomkos. Um, but I, I've thought that IMSA's kind of fallen off on uh, privateer entries and stuff. And Lamar has had the same ordeal with at least the very top cars in the race, and that might be because of the money that it costs to put a car on the track to be at the front of the grid, or that might be, you know, politics, that might be people falling out, but it was really awesome to see Champion Racing back in the day. I remember seeing those cars. They were, I always thought they were really cool back when I was a kid. That's just all white with a bunch of stripes of color on it. I really enjoyed those cars. I know a lot of other people did too, and had a lot of respect for Champion Racing, and even to other teams, and down to the Pescarolos of the sport. You know, it's it's what makes it exciting and everybody can kind of come out and root for the underdogs. So I'm hoping that when we move into LMDH, like you said, you know, we'll start getting some teams back and, and I, I hope that we can start rejuvenating that because outside of the technical aspect of motorsports, obviously there's entertainment involved and it's very entertaining to have those cars out on track, those privateers. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking back to 2008 as well with the RS spider program now, um, you had the factory Penske program, but you also had Dyson racing over in the States here. Uh, after Penske left, actually after Dyson left the RS Spider program as well, we had um, Cytosport, also known as Muscle Milk Racing, as they're more commonly known, pick up the RS Spider program. Um, and, I, you know, I just think that that's, as I had said before, I think that that's crucial almost to a class like LMDH, where a lot of its headlines... Because the thing about LMDH, and I'll always hold this under LMDH as compared to Hypercar, is that it's as it's not as technically driven as Lamar Hypercar is, where you can, you know, pour a lot of I don't want to say a lot of money because it's certainly not as advanced as LMP1 was, but you can pour more money into making the car your own. You have your own chassis, you can have your own hybrid system, and I think that that those things alone make the cars themselves more interesting. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. I think that having a car where you can pretty much develop every aspect on it is certainly interesting. And that's part of the reason why I loved LMP1 hybrids 
for so long. I mean, 2015 and 2016 LMP1 hybrid was just, I think, by far my favorite class of cars in the last 20 years. Um, now, DPI has always put on some fantastic racing, and I'll never discredit it for that. Uh, but certainly from a technical aspect, it's a little bit less exciting than we'll see from some of the other cars like LMP1 hybrid or even like Lamar hybrid cars. Um, that just sort of has always been there for me. So I think for a class that's set up similar to DPI like LMDH is, um, you need to have a strong customer interest. And I'm really hoping that they're able to pull it off with the introduction of those regulations. Now, Another thing I want to talk about here is that over in the World Endurance Championship, now Kyle and I talked about this in the last episode quite a bit, um, the LMP2 cars are a little bit of a struggle uh, when it comes to their similarity and pace to the new Le Mans hypercars. And um, as a result, the LMP2 cars have been slowed down, uh, and it looks like they may have to be slowed down even more for the round at... Um, Portimao, possibly, um, just because of how close they ended up being at Spa. And um, so IMSA, which also runs the LMP2 class, uh, has said, John Doonan has said that they will not be slowing down the LMP2 cars through 2022, um, which is pretty much at the current, the end of our current regulation set over in IMSA with Daytona Prototype International and the LMP2 cars as they are right now. So, obviously over in Europe, and I guess worldwide since we're talking the World Endurance Championship, um, the LMP2 pace in the WEC has been a little bit controversial. It's caused some drivers to say that the cars are a little bit too hard to drive for an amateur-based or a pro-am-based class of car. Um... So just a little bit of a side note there that over in IMSA, it looks like we're not going to have those same changes, which I think is a good thing. Certainly it's not needed over in IMSA right now. The DPI cars are able to separate themselves more than enough from the LMP2 cars. Actually, I think it's a little bit of a shame because I personally enjoyed 2018 when we had some LMP2 cars fighting for the overall wins and even championship at the end of the season if you want to take a look at Core Autosport. Uh, but that's my own rant for a whole other thing. I've gone over that many times before. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there as a quick aside. Uh, I'm going to take a couple of questions here because I've seen the chat has been very active and I haven't really gotten too many questions here. Um, now, let's just, it's just quite a few uh, things to read through. Is next-gen LMP2 going to be slower? Um slower than well, okay so this is where i need comparison slower than the current breed of lmp2 cars when they came out i think yes um because of the drop in pace from the lama hypercars you got to remember that the current lmp2 regulations first hit the track in 2017 that was uh that means that they were already well into development before we had even had heard rumors that audi would be departing and that porsche would be departing now, LMP1 in 2016 was still at its peak, and that class didn't show any signs of really dropping dropping or going anywhere. Um, so L at that point, LMP2 cars really got a speed boost to sort of bring them up towards the pace uh, comparative to the LMP1 hybrids. So that's when they were setting, you know, 3-minute 25s at Le Mans. 
you can look back at 2011, which is only 10 years ago, and the LMP1 cars were doing 325s at Le Mans. So that's when we saw a huge pace hike for the LMP2 cars. Sure enough, LMP1 hybrid falls off a cliff. It's no more. Now we have the Le Mans hypercar class and uh, LMDH coming in 2023. And the LMP2 cars that were introduced in 2017 are too similar on pace to those cars. So they've had to try to find a way to slow those down. Now, yeah, I think that we're going to see the LMP2 cars dropping in pace um, even from where they are now because I still think it's a little bit too much of an issue over the World Endurance Championship. I'll be very interested to see what Portimao looks like. That's been the main thing for me. And I already said in the last episode that I think Le Mans is going to be... Uh, you know, people have brought up LMP2 cars winning Le Mans overall this year. Uh, I, the only way I see that happening is if all of the hypercars run into some reliability issues. Now, we've seen that before with 2017, where the LMP1 cars all broke pretty much. Um, and we were less than two hours away from the number 38 Jota LMP2 car winning overall. Unfortunately, Porsche took it back with a little under two hours to go, and we lost that amazing storyline. Um so that's the only scenario I see that happening again this year, because quite frankly, if you look at Le Mans, with the top speed difference that we have with those cars now, um, I just don't think that the gap is going to be as close there as it was at, say, Spa, or what it could possibly be at Portimao as well. So I added way too much to your question there, but long story short, um, the LMP2 cars are certainly going to be slower than the ones that were introduced in 2017, slower than the ones that we have in the World Endurance Championship now, potentially i think it sort of aligns with what we're seeing and what i would like to see is for them to find a way to slow the cars down uh in a more efficient way which sort of sounds a little counterintuitive you know you'd think we should be finding a way to speed them up in an efficient way that's generally all the talk when it comes to racing um but with that class right now obviously too close to the speed of the top class prototypes you got to find a way to slow it down without making them necessarily undrivable. And also another thing you have to keep account for is not making them too slow that they interfere with the GT classes because even that's been a little bit of a concern starting at Spa. And uh, I'll be interested to see how that looks for the rest of the season as well. Uh, Jesus, chat is moving faster than I can read it today. Um... DPI proves you can make a championship-winning car absolutely gorgeous and identifiable, i.e. Cadillac, quite the contrary to the Europe or EU prototypes for the past 10 years. Um, yes, yeah, so there's just some discussion going on about DPI versus LMP1 and all of that. LMDH is set to be uh, 1,030 kilograms, so LMP2 surely should be slower without the spec hybrid power. Um, yeah, that sort of just goes off of the um, discussion that I was just going on with LMP2 pace. Alpine should probably be considered the favorite at Le Mans this year, considering the car is tried and tested. Um, yeah, that's another thing I'm certainly going to be looking at and talking about more when we get towards, or get closer to Le Mans. Um, they are, for those unaware, running a Rebellion R13 LMP1 car with a, a couple of livery changes really and um it's been slowed down from the lmp1 car but yes that car 
has an engine that has been tested over 24 hours multiple times. And uh, they certainly have an advantage when it comes to, I think, test testing-wise or endurance testing-wise, despite how much work Toyota has put in as well on their own car. Um, so I'm going to move back to uh, just some discussion here in the meantime, because we do have a lot to go over uh, in this episode. We're 30 minutes in, a little bit over, and uh, still talking about sports car racing. So I do have some IndyCar to talk about as well um because we've been off for a couple of weeks now we're right in the middle of the month of may joe and uh, indycar had their first on track practice for the indy 500 today um but before i talk about that i want to talk about the gp this weekend uh and i've been talking for quite a while so joe if you have anything to talk about possibly to recap the uh the indy gp the gmr grand prix at indianapolis i am all open ears well, I made a couple notes. I went back and, and watched it through. I was uh, partaking in my own racing experiences this weekend with the World of Outlaws and the NASCAR race at Dover. So I went back and I, I got to watch it on replay. I noticed the start was kind of calamity. Um, and one thing I noticed at the very beginning of the race was Dixon and Pato Award making some contact. And it seemed like everybody kind of didn't notice that, but um, that obviously that offset Dixon and Pato from the rest of the field in terms of strategy from the very beginning, obviously the guy that it seems like every single announcer, um, pronounced the name differently of Roman Grosjean, uh, was on track to win the race more or less. I see it in the chat, even that, um, JG in the chat just mentioned Grosjean was robbed of that one. And I, I think there's some ex- lower level and ex- inexperience going into, Maybe some of the aspects of Rick Ware Racing and Dale Coyne teaming up to work together. Anytime you have new groups of people working together, there's just some time where they have to get used to things. But I thought, obviously, Roman's a a great driver. He was able to hold a very long tenure in F1, and there's a reason for that. You know, he's he's got a lot of respect uh, in the paddock over there. He's he's proved himself. Um, But... You know, you come over to IndyCar, it's a different car, and we've seen it with Max Chilton, Marcus Erickson. It takes some time to get the swing of things, but Rojan, I think it took him a lot less time, and he's definitely proved himself to race at Indy. I think Indy kind of suits the style of an F1 driver these days more so than maybe in the past, because Indy, obviously the track's pretty flat. There's a lot of long stretch before you go into a hard braking zone obviously turn one and then at the end of Holman Avenue, I think especially when you run down Holman Avenue, that just screams formula one track to me anymore. And I remember his roots, Joe. (laughs) Well, yeah, the, uh, the beginning stages of that race course weren't the, uh, quite the same. Obviously they, it was a formula one track, but um, that, that section was a little bit different back in the day. And it seems to suit that style for an F1 driver. Um, Roman, never raced there in f1 but nonetheless he still came out swinging and i was very impressed by renus too i think if anybody was going to win that race over roman it would be bk he was just on the money and he was soaring through the field very impressed by his runs and even he passed hello and johnson at the same time i believe down holman avenue and that was absolutely stellar that pass in the middle three wide into the corner he broke late and got the 21 car through the two Chip, Chip Ganassi cars 
Pelot had just come out of the pits for that one. That that moment right there, I instantly became a VK fan. That was such a cool thing for him to do. I mean, obviously not the smartest long term if, if things go wrong, but it worked out for him. And he was just, you know, over the course of the whole race, a little bit better. He had a little bit more help on pit lane and the strategy of the race changed and changed in his favor. And, you know, at the end of it, Roman pitted. VK had already pitted before him, got out on better rubber and made the pass while Roman was in the pits. So a bit of a strategy race. But I think if you take the strategy out of it, you definitely have to hand it to Grosjean for how well he did. And then also to obviously VK for winning. But then you look at third place, you look at Alex Pillow, and I'm really liking what I see out of Alex Pillow this year. Obviously, he started his season with Chip Ganassi at the top step of the podium. He's got another podium added on this weekend. I think Pillow has a really great shot to finally be a guy who sits in that 10 spot for 10 seat, rather the seat of the number 10 car at Chip Ganassi racing for a tenure, rather than what we've seen the last few years where it seems like you get one or two years and then they move on to a different spot or a different team. I think Pillow could very well hold that spot. And I think a couple of years from now, we could very easily be talking about Alex as one of the championship contenders on a regular basis. You know, Scott Dixon definitely is still competitive. Um, he's getting older, but still has some time in him. But just like anything, you do have to look to the future here and there. And I think you look at Alex Pillow in that spot. That's a really great spot for him. And it seems to be working well. Maybe even, who knows, my my old pal Michael Cannon will pop over and those guys will win six, seven races in a row in a couple of years. That would be really cool for uh, Michael Cannon. He made me chicken and waffles once. He's a good guy. And obviously, Hello is doing well with that spot. I think that's really great for him. Pato has been doing pretty well this season, too. Obviously, the start of the race wasn't great for him, but I think that would be somebody we'd want to watch as we move towards 500 and later into the season. But I liked what I saw. I thought it was a classic IndyCar race, just kind of easygoing for the majority of it. Some really great battles on track and a, a lot more exciting, I think, as a Grand Prix at Indianapolis than some of the stuff we've seen previously. And we broke that streak where we had Will Power and Simon Pagino winning all the time. That was really cool to, for the, uh, at least for the spring event at Speedway that somebody else got a victory and lo and behold, it'd be a first time winner. I thought it was a really great race. Yeah. And there's certainly a lot to unpack here. Um, I have discovered a fantastic tool that lets me analyze everything that happened in the race. So if you heard my mouse clicking a little bit while you were talking, that was me pulling it up. And it basically tells me stint by stint how every single driver was performing in that race. Now, something that I noticed very early on, and I definitely wanted to look into it, which is what I just did right now, um, is you mentioned that you don't think that there was another driver out there besides Renus VK that was going to be able to beat Grosjean. You know, the funny part is that there was nothing particularly telling that he was going to be a contender for the win. Um... I believe he was actually fastest. Yes, he was fastest in the warm-up session, but started the race in seventh place. When you look at his first stint, and I don't want to get too in-depth here because I could read on this all day if I really wanted to, but I want to talk about a couple things here. His first stint was 12 laps, uh, and Romain Grosjean's first stint was 25 laps. So you saw Grosjean go twice as long. Um, now, VK, his best lap from that first stint was a 112 flat. And Grosjean's fastest lap was a 1.10.9. Um, so I find it pretty interesting in that first stint there, because even if you look at the average lap times, you can tell that VK was much slower than Grosjean. Um, 
So you look at the beginning of the race there, I still wouldn't have expected him to be a contender at that part of the race. Then you compare the second stints from both of those drivers. Now, VK's second stint lasted 23 laps, brought him right around to lap 35. Um, and Grosjean's second stint was 18 laps. So this is where we start to see them overlap a little bit. Um, now, the average lap time from VK... In that second, uh, yeah, in that second stint was a 1.11.9 compared to a 1.12.2. So I think VK really in the middle sections of the race, sort of the beginning slash middle, started to pull a little bit more pace on Grosjean. When we look at the third stint, oops, I just completely selected the wrong thing here. When we look at the third stints, um, again, VK getting more life out of those tires, 25 laps compared to Grosjean's 20. Uh, they both went for their third pit stop. Um, uh, not both of them. Uh, VK went on lap 60 and Grosjean went on 63. Uh, again, actually average lap time around here. Um, Grosjean seemed to pick up the pace a little bit, but it was really in that final stint. Um, VK once again, another 25 laps on the stint and Grosjean 22. Um, I'm trying to remember... What la or what tire both of those drivers finished on? I don't know if you were able to pick that up. Um, cause I, I believe that I remember specifically. It might not have been the ending of the race, but I do remember the the, the majority of the way from like halfway on. A lot of the talk was about the reds not falling off very much compared to you know some other times when we take the reds out onto racetracks and and it's hot and the red tires get a couple good laps and then they wear off and obviously they run much shorter so i remember vk had the reds on when grosjean put on primaries at one point and that was pretty substantial for um what they were believing would be grosjean's possible chance to get back up to vk once the reds wore off but the reds didn't really wear off super quickly and i'm pretty sure that vk rode those reds out to the finish of the race and i I believe that means I believe Grosjean got to the primaries. I don't remember perfectly off the top of my head, so I apologize if that's wrong, but I'm pretty sure that VK had the reds and Grosjean's had the blacks, and that's what made the difference um, for VK, at least, was that the reds weren't wearing out quite as quickly as initially expected or, or you would have expected for the alternates. But um, I, I remember that, and I think that was pretty important for when VK was able to pass Grosjean because like you mentioned at the very beginning of the race VK was not a factor to Grosjean you know at the, very, at the very beginning of the race if it would have only been a 10 lap event Grosjean would have had that in the bag but over the course of the entirety of the, the program was when VK started to kind of slowly but surely put something together and, and get the car moving towards the front and then evidently get past Grosjean with uh, the pit cycles and such. Right, actually, I was able to pull up the classification from the end of the race. Uh, both VK and Grosjean were both on the red alternate alternate tires uh, at the end of the race. The only driver in the top 11, actually, that was on the primary black tire was Alex Pillow. Um, actually, another thing I noticed while I was here is that VK actually had 16 seconds of push to pass left at the end of the race compared to Grosjean, who had zero. Uh, and actually... I don't know if this was a glitch or if this was actually reality, but Graham Rahal at the end of the race had 180 seconds of push to pass remaining. And there you go, Joe. Perfect segue, because I want to talk about Graham Rahal 
had a very disastrous beginning of uh, the race. Actually ended up pitting twice. Let's see if I can go back to the uh, the stint overviews. Pitted twice um, within three laps. Uh, found himself all the way near the back of the field and was able to crawl back to a fifth place finish towards the end of the race. Just an absolutely incredible drive. I don't think a lot of people talked about it uh, in the broadcast at least. I know it got brought up after the race by a couple of different people. Another driver who I saw was able to really climb back with Scott Dixon as well. Again, found himself way in the back after the lap one incident um, and was able to crawl back to a ninth place finish. Very important for him because he is still the points leader leaving that race um, and going into the Indy 500. So speaking of points, I want to talk about that real quick. Scott Dixon with 176 points, followed by his teammate Alex Pillow in the number 10 car, and then Joseph Newgarden third. Now, I think Kyle predicted at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the season when we did our IndyCar preview episode, and a lot of people predicted this as well that the championship was going to come down to Dixon and Newgarden again. With I think a couple of people saying Newgarden was going to be the one coming out on top this year. Uh, Newgarden right now is holding a what is that a twenty eight point deficit. Uh, I believe my math is right on that twenty eight point deficit to Scott Dixon. Good uh, math. At the moment. There we go. I'm really rusty. I should be able to do basic addition or subtraction. But um, Anyways. Another driver yeah. that's... Oh, what were you saying? Well, I was just going to agree with that. I, I, I think, obviously, Alabama, when we went to Barber, that kind of screwed Newgarden out of getting a good start on the season. But I don't I don't know. I'm kind of liking the way Pelot's going. He might be the dark horse guy to be contending at the end of the season with Dixon and Newgarden and I mean you, you just look at statistics if you if you're talking about Newgarden because he, he wins a championship he has a year where he kind of is off the top steps and then he goes back to you know winning the championship that's only happened in the last four years it's been a cycle so it's something to watch I, I don't know but he's definitely at the spearhead of the camp for Roger Penske right now so if anybody's going to be doing it uh, getting up there with the Ganassi cars, I think it's going to be just Newgarden. That's, that, I think that's a fair statement. And, um, yeah, so I just want to go over to the top five in the championship right now. Scott Dixon, Alex Pelot, Joseph Newgarden, Pato Award, and Graham Rahal. Actually, we'll just go sixth place. Renus VK after that victory at Indianapolis, finding himself sixth in the points, which I think is very promising for him. Still relatively new to the world of IndyCar, so I think for him that's a very strong showing, and hopefully he's going to be able to continue that momentum throughout the summer. Um, now, I do want to say that before uh, I jumped towards a recap of this race, I meant to talk about IMSA at Mid-Ohio while we were on that topic, uh, but I forgot, went right to IndyCar. And uh, so while we're on IndyCar, I'm just going to continue with it, but if you're here for that recap, we're going to be doing that after I talk about the Indy 500 practice session that went on today. Uh, so stick around if you're interested in that, because I have a couple points to pick with that race. Um, now, combined practice results, because I, I primarily want to take a look at the combined practice results. There were three sessions total today. There was the veteran session. Um, there was a rookie orientation session, and there was a combined session, I believe. Uh, so Will Power... Actually, were, were there two se- No, there were two sessions, right? Yes, that is correct. Okay, there were two sessions. I don't know where I got three from. I think that there was a uh, 
whatever. Just throw that out the window. Two sessions. Um, so, Will Power taking the top time in practice today at 226.4. Um, actually, you know what? While we're at it, I want to pull up the top speed from last year's Indy 500. Um, because that's, it's always fun to compare the speeds. I know that we're playing with some different... They're playing with some different car setups from last year. Uh, notably, I believe the front wing got some changes. And I saw from good good friend, good pal Kyle Cuthbertson um, earlier that the strakes were going to be optional in qualifying, I believe, which I think is new as well. Um, now, let's see. We're, okay, so opening practice last year, top speed was James Hinchcliffe. Um, at 224.5. So we're saying 226.4. So that's almost a 2 mile per hour increase over the last year. Now granted, we're running with, uh, with some slightly different track conditions there. It was very cloudy at the speedway today. Track conditions were relatively cool. It's also May. It's not August. So temperatures in general are supposed to be a little bit cooler. Uh, Ryan hunter Ray was in second place. Followed by Takuma Sato, Sage Karam, and Connor Daly. Now, something notable about Connor Daly is he actually had the fastest speed trap time of the day. Uh, I did save a photo of that. 239.4 miles per hour from Connor Daly in the speed trap today, which when we're talking about race boost right here, um, I just want to briefly explain that for those unfamiliar. IndyCar with the Indianapolis 500 has two different, I guess, modes of qualifier of of turbo boost that they'll run on the cars. So they have race boost, which they will run from now until, or from now through Thursday, and um, on Carb Day and the race as well. And I guess the there's practice on there's practice after qualifying as well, uh, where they will be running that. Um, and then they have the qualifying boost, which is where they dial up the turbo pressure and basically make car go faster. Uh, you'll see the first speeds from those cars on Friday, which is known as Fast Friday, and Saturday and Sunday on qualifying as well. So that's why you'll see the cars quite a bit faster in single car runs uh, on those three days than they are right now. So for Connor Daly, you get 200, nearly 240 with race boost, I think is extremely impressive. Ryan Hunter Ray was the second fastest at 237.6. So you're seeing again, almost a two mile per hour difference there. Um, and the fastest non-toe speed of the day, I believe goes to Ed Carpenter. Uh, No-toe speeds are pretty important to take a look at when you're talking about race pace. You know, you're not always going to find yourself in a large pack we're going to be able to get drafts. So single car speed is very important. Ed Carpenter racing is usually very strong at Indianapolis. Looks like no different here where you have Ed Carpenter with the fastest non-toe speed of the day. Again, at 219.16. Followed by Scott Dixon and Connor Daly. Um, Joe, I'm going to throw it over to you. See if you have anything to add on here. Because I feel like uh, that's the majority of what I have. And there's a couple of other things I want to talk about in a minute here. Yeah, I th you summed it up pretty well. I think, obviously, so the first thing was that I, I went back and, and we, were, we were talking about two or three sessions, and there were there were two main practice sessions, and the third session debacle was the rookie orientation 
um, fresher, which only included three cars, and one of them didn't even hardly do anything. So it wasn't much, but it was a thing they did. But I think one thing that is really worthwhile about today's practice is you can see a very big difference in the uh, how well the Chevrolets and Hondas are, are racing with each other this year. If you look back to 2020, obviously, I mean, 2020 was screwed up in a lot of ways all around you know, the globe and everything outside of racing. But you look at the orders of practices and into qualifying in the race, it was very Honda dominant. Even from opening day last year, the Hondas were at the top of the charts. I, I think they held um, eight out of the 10 or nine out of the 10 top spots um, within those practice sessions. And then obviously, uh, if you recall, there was only one Chevrolet in the Fast 9 to set the first three rows of the grid. And then um, there was only one Chevrolet that ever led laps last year. That was Simon Pagano. He's the only one who could hang on to lead the race as a Chevrolet car. So obviously we can see the results from um, today were a lot better for the Chevrolets. You had uh, pretty good showings from obviously Ed Carpenter, fastest no-to speed. You had Connor Daly was up there. Will Power did well. I mean, I, I think it's just, a lot better distribution than it was last year. And I think that's, you know, hopefully that pays in that the Chevy guys have a chance to fight with the Honda guys as we move forward in testing. And then obviously into fast Friday, fast Friday's pretty different. So time will tell for that, but I think it's, it's a good start for this year that we can try to get all 33 of those cars to be more competitive, to race each other for the win. Yeah, I think you had some good points there. Uh, another thing I want to talk about is we've seen Honda with a couple of reliability concerns, especially during the GP weekend. Um, now, a couple of drivers that I noticed with this were two of the Andretti cars, actually. You had Colton Herta and you had Alexander Rossi. Now, this was brought up in the NBC broadcast a couple of times. I don't know if we actually got any official word as to what was going on, but... It looked like they had a little bit of smoke coming from the engine on some downshifts, possibly even some of the upshifts as well. Now, I don't... Uh, admittedly, I wasn't able to watch a ton of practice today just because I was preoccupied with some school stuff. Yeah, go figure. It's the summer and I'm still doing school stuff. Um, but I wasn't able to see if there were any of those concerns in practice today. But obviously, when it's the month of May, you don't want to be... Talking about engine concerns, obviously, that was a huge talking point back in 2017 when Fernando Alonso came over with Honda and Andretti, and uh, all of a sudden you have a bunch of Hondas blowing up, including Alonso's in the race towards the latter stages. Um, Joe, I don't know if you had seen anything throughout practice today to sort of support that, but I do know that it's something that's a little bit of a concern and something we're probably going to be keeping our eyes on for the rest of the week. Well, I know that... so. My best guess from, because I remember what you were talking about with the, the GP with the smoke on the cars, that was on straightaways, and obviously the straightaways were your full throttle. The only, I mean, I had thought, it's kind of a silly comparison, but I had one time when I was driving out to Purdue that I had, a, I believe, a piston ring go out on one of the um, pistons in my, my car, and the sort of the same concept happened. You would push the throttle down harder and it would start smoking and it would keep running like that. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of go back and forth with reliability with Honda anymore. It seems that, 
you know, you, you talk about 2017, that was a pretty major example of the Hondas going awry. And, you know, we're, we're looking at possibly having the same thing again, but uh, it's tough to say. I mean, I, you wouldn't expect an engine to go on a day like today was where it was cloudier and cooler. Um, you, you know, you kind of expect the harsher conditions to play harsher on the engines and obviously engines just run better on cooler temperatures it's sort of a thermodynamic way of how engines work is just that when you put cooler temperature air into them they have a little bit better efficiency and power output so um you know if if we're watching higher temperatures in the future which i i saw the news tonight believe it or not i actually watched the news that's something that not many people do anymore but the weather, I think they said there's going to be some high-pressure systems making warmer temperatures in the Midwest and Northeast and, and et cetera. So definitely would be something that we want to watch out for if, if that actually is true and the weathermen are correct that it's going to get a little warmer over the course of, say, this week and into the next one, that I think once the temperatures get a little warmer, you'll definitely be able to pinpoint how much of an issue that's going to become you know, come the rest of the month and into the race itself. So definitely that's something that uh, would be you kind of have to watch as the practices keep going and the temperatures change and we get to see how the cars are running at different times. But for the moment, you know, obviously after 2017, at least for me, every year is kind of a year on hold to make sure the Hondas can uh, compete at the top end without having issues. And so I guess this year's a little more exciting with that. Right. Um, and as I said, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, any developments that happen would likely happen throughout practice week, which we're going to be recapping in next week's episode. So tune in next week if anything happens and uh, we'll give our thoughts on it. Um, just a couple of wrap up thoughts here. I know, I think you had mentioned earlier that there was a very nice blend of cars across the top 10. I went back to the combined practice results right across the top 10. We have five Chevys and five Hondas, um, which I think is I think that summarizes it perfectly. Very, very nice blend of cars. Uh, it doesn't look like there's anyone in particular particular that has a huge advantage right now. Looks like Chevy might be a little bit uh, sort of advantaged at the moment. Just a little bit, though. And um, granted, this is all after one day. We'll have to see what we see later in the week, especially with qualifying. Uh, the tables could turn entirely. Now, another thing that I noticed, again, this is only off one day, and I don't want to dive too deep into it um, but Andretti Autosport seemed a little bit slower than I was expecting certainly the only Andretti car in the top 12 was Ryan Hunter Ray in second place um, usually Andretti is a staple team at Indianapolis so you'd expect that they're going to be right up there contending for the win um, so I, I just think that that's a little bit notable that they weren't quite there I'm trying to see the next Andretti car would have been James Hinchcliffe down in 16th Again, this is off the combined practice results. And then you have 20th was Marco Andretti. 21st was Colton Herta. And then we had Stefan Wilson in 34th. Now, am I missing anybody? Why do I feel like I'm missing somebody? Was that all? I think it was. Okay. Um, I don't know. I just can't lose. Can't keep count. There's so many Andretti cars at Indianapolis. Um, last thing I want to talk about here, though, before we move on to something else is uh, that qualifying is this weekend. I want to do a quick couple of predictions on this. Um, so I guess I'll start here. 
I had mentioned, I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast, but I had mentioned it sort of in closed conversations before that I had some concerns about Top Gun racing, um, making it into the field. Now, actually, another thing to note before I go on to this very quickly is um, that the number 52 Dale Coyne racing with Rick Ware racing entry has actually been dropped. So now we are down to 35 cars, not the 36 that we were expecting to have beforehand. So only two cars will be going home this weekend on bump day, which is going to be Saturday. Um, so back to Top Gun Racing. Fastest speed of the day from RC Enerson was a 212.981. Uh, I'd love to actually see how many laps they ran, but I don't know if I have quick access to that, unfortunately. Well, RC had to do the uh, rookie orientation today, right. and that, I believe he was the one, yes, he was the one that they had an issue with the car, and he um, didn't finish his orientation, and then also didn't get back on, on track for the day. Uh, a quick Google search gives me that it was a drive axle issue for that Top Gun racing machine, so he didn't get his rookie orientation done. He's going to get another chance to do it. Um, they, they will give him another opportunity to take it and complete it, but if they have more technical difficulties, that car might not even get a chance to qualify, but on top of that, that's just that's just adding on more and more to the pile of, of issues that they have to overcome if they want to get that car up to uh, proper speed to be able to make the race in the first place. So I think that's definitely going to set them back and just ha not having the entire day to work on that car and, and get it set up. I think that's very important for the team morale wise and knowledge wise to be prepared on fast Friday to get their car under them and, and be able to qualify for the race. So I'd agree. I think Top Gun's kind of sitting in a, a rough spot right now. I wouldn't count them out, but uh, I wouldn't want to be sitting there. Yeah, I mean, if I had to make a quick prediction on two of the drivers I wouldn't see advancing this weekend, I'd have to I'd have to go with the 75, you know, as much as I'd love to see the underdog make it in. I just, you know, historically, it's never been a great sign when teams are out on the first day of practice and uh, they lose a lot of testing time. I think, you know, we saw this with McLaren. They lost a lot of testing time in 2019 after Alonso had his accident. And, um, you know, that was pretty much a dent in there in their hopes of making it into the field uh as for the other car though you know i, I gotta be honest i think it's gonna be a big surprise i think we're gonna see at least one surprise um driver that isn't gonna make it into the field because it's really hard to pick at least judging off the day one practice speeds i mean i know i've seen the name charlie kimball thrown around a lot he was in 26th max chilton was 31st um you know, I'd certainly expect Stefan Wilson to pick it up. It's been three years since he's even set foot in an IndyCar. So I think that today was more of a confidence day for him. Only 218.5 uh, on the combined results for his first day. I certainly would expect that we're going to see him run faster throughout the week as that confidence builds. Um, but even Jack Harvey, you know, Jack Harvey was down in 30th place with a 222. Usually I'd expect to see him closer to the front. Um it's really just hard for me to pick, though. I'd, I'd have to guess that the Top Gun Racing is going to be one of the entries going home, but I think the second one would be such a long shot that um, I can't even sit here right now and make a reasonable prediction. I don't know about you. Yeah, it's it's hard 
because, I mean, you look through the field, even the guys who are one-offs this year, you know, obviously you got Elio and Juan. We, we know them very well. Um, you got Pietro Fittipaldi returning. You know, you got Sage Karam. Obviously, you know, Top Gun's in there. And uh, I don't I don't know. It's it's hard. Dalton Kellett's a guy who's – I hate to say it because I like Dalton Kellett, but he's a guy who's kind of been at the tail of the field more often. And, you know, that's somebody you'd want to watch. Uh, yeah, you know, Top Gun, I think that's a fair statement right now. Fast Friday will give us a better um, representation of that. We don't talk about Simona really as a car looking in from the outside. And I think even with Coretta Autosport being a new team, should have been, should be uh, able to make the field. I think they've been showing some strength as a team lately that they, they could be able to put something together. So it's, it's really tough right now. And obviously they didn't even run qualifying trim today. So we really don't know for yeah. sure at all. Um, it would be tough to say, but I, I would agree if you're going to look at anybody right now, in your way too early to call it situation, the adversity that Top Gun Racing is going to have to overcome definitely sets them back a step from everybody else in the field. Right. I mean, you mentioned Pareto with Simona Di Silvestre, 13th at the uh, in the combined results today, 224.2. Um, and that Penske affiliation certainly is going to help that team out a long way. I mean, you say, yes, it's a new team, sure, but you look at the affiliation that they're running with, and it's anything but new in that regard. Um. yeah I mean we're going to have to just wait and see on that one obviously we're going to have that qualifying recap next week so again there's my plug to tune in next week we're going to be recapping all of that and you know as a reminder it only takes one car you know you can be the fastest driver all week you can talk willpower if you want you can have an accident in qualifying on Saturday morning on his first or second run Um. you know and all of a sudden he's on the outside looking in and if they can't repair that car in time then you know, it's really all it takes at Indianapolis to not make the field. So I'd say nobody's truly safe at this point in the game. And I think everybody in the field knows that. Um, yeah, it's pretty much all I have to recap from Indianapolis today. A little bit, a little bit of a blessing that we're one day late on this episode since we got to recap practice, at least one day of practice. Um, you know, they say one is better than none. Anyways, uh, let's jump back to IMSA here. Um, because IMSA at mid Ohio. Now, First of all, there were three classes in the race. There was DPI, LMP3, and GTD. I don't want to dive too, too far into IMSA. Uh, I think that there were certainly a lot of talking points with the DPI class, which is what I'm going to be talking about primarily here. Um, so let's just start with the facts here. The number 10, Wayne Taylor Racing uh, Acura, picking up their second win of the season. First one being Daytona, which first of all, it felt really weird to me to be going two months without that race in IMSA. Uh, usually the longest break we have to endure over in the IMSA WeatherTech Championship is between Daytona and Sebring, which is usually a little bit under, about a month and a half or so, a little bit under two months. Um, but here we had Sebring, which was a race that I had attended, uh, which was, I believe it was March 20th, I want to say. Uh, yeah, March 20th, and we went to April 16th without a race. Uh, no, sorry, May 16th without a race. Um, 
so yeah, I think that that was, I sort of just remembered that this going into this week and I was like, oh my God, it's actually been since Sebring, since we've had an IMSA race for the WeatherTech Championship. Uh, anyways, so as I said, the number 10, Kanaka Minolta, Wayne Taylor Racing, Acura, picking up the win, followed by Felipe Nazar in the number 31, Whelan Engineering, Action Express, Cadillac, and the 55, Mazda Motorsports, Mazda, finishing third. In the LMP3 class, uh, we had the number 74, Riley Motorsports, Ligier, followed by the number 38, Performance Tech, Ligier, and the number 91, Riley Motorsports, Ligier, uh, sister to the number 74 car. Now, in addition, we had to the LMP3 class this race was the 36 Andretti Autosport Ligier, making the step up from the IMSA Prototype Challenge, um, where they were expecting to run full-time, I believe, but they made the jump up to the WeatherTech Championship for the remainder of the season with Jarrett Andretti and Oliver Askew. Now, I've actually heard Marco Andretti's name being thrown around a little bit, as to a driver that might end up in that seat later in the season. Uh, I assume he would be taking over Askew's seat because of driver ratings. Uh, I don't know what Marco Andretti's FIA driver rating is. I'd assume it's a gold. Um, I, I just don't think it would be a silver. I'm pretty sure it would have to be gold, in which case yeah. he'd likely be taking Askew's seat or maybe just doing some of the endurance races like Watkins Glen if they have three drivers for that race, and um, Road Atlanta, sorry, later in the season with Petit Le Mans. That's a potential as well. GTD, finally. Uh, another win for Turner Autosport, the number 96 BMW M6, as Bill Oberlin extends his reign as the winningest driver in IMSA history. He took that record from Scott Pruitt last season and has been extending it since. Looks like he has no signs of stopping right now. So uh, another great result from Turner Motorsport. Followed by the number 12, Vassar Sullivan Lexus. Zach Veach getting a fantastic result uh, in one of his first IMSA races. And in third place, the number one Paul Miller Racing Lamborghini. Now, as I said, I do want to talk about uh, DPI here. Notably the finish, and this is where I'm going to pull up my, my strategy overview once again, if I can actually get the data to load that would be tragic if i can't because it's the one race where i really want it <sighs> maybe we won't get that uh anyways the thing i want to talk about is the final stint now the right motorsports porsche and the well i think it was the faf porsche Correct. uh got together in the final turn what's the name for that i always forget mid-ohio corner names kyle would kill me yeah, Kyle, if Kyle were here right now, he'd be able to tell you, but yeah, honestly, yeah, whatever. I can't. Last turn, got together a little bit, um, and Patrick Long was sat out on track beach. Now, this was about 35 minutes to go, I think, roughly, is when this was happening. Um, and as a result, we get a restart in DPI. Word from all the teams is that everybody's going to have to make a splash to make it to the end, and so you had... Really a poor stop from the 55 Mazda uh, that made them restart third. They had pretty much the car that was leading the field up until that point. Um, but it really looked like they were on a fuel-saving run on that next restart. They started falling back a little bit. You know, all of a sudden they're 10 seconds back, 15 seconds back. 
Um, another team that was especially looking like they were saving fuel was the number five JDC Miller team. Um, looked like they were really just trying to be the only team that might be able to make it without that extra stop. Now, I think it was, the gap was 25 seconds um, where they would have to, you know, they'd have to be roughly 25 seconds back to be able to avoid making that pit stop and come out on top. So up until around 10 minutes to go, it looks like every single team except maybe the Mazda and maybe the number five car would have to be pitting for a splash of fuel. Uh, and sure enough, it seems like almost every single team managed to mess up their calculations on fuel. Because um, we're getting later on in the race here, and it's like, okay, well, maybe the 31 can make it, but the 10's going to have to come in, so the 31's going to have this in the bag. And then, all right, well, now it's looking like the 10 might have enough fuel to make this. Uh, and then, sure enough, number 10 car crossing the line uh, with enough fuel in reserve to uh, to hold off a victory over the 31 car. A couple of cars weren't able to make it the entire length. Uh, the number six Meyer Shank Racing Acura had to pit for fuel along with the 01 um, Cadillac, Chip Ganassi Racing Cadillac DPI. Just a heartbreaking season for them. I think that they were in, th yeah, they were in third place when they had to pit. That was gonna be their first podium of the season and Really just the unbearable part for that team is they had such high expectations going into the season, but we're three races in, and they are the only team thus far that has not scored a podium yet in the DPI class. So I think a real shame for them. They're going to want to turn this season around because so far it's been a disaster. Uh, as I said, they had finished fifth in that race. Now, yeah, for sure. Oh, oh yeah, I, you can go ahead. I think it's, I think it's worth noting, you know, what Kevin Magnuson... Well... Obviously, just like Rojan came out of the spot at the uh, camp for Haas in F1, um, kind of getting things underway. He seemed like he had it under control from Daytona but and forward. But I honestly thought, you know, it's a learning experience for him. He's figuring things out with the car. Um, but from what I saw of the IMSA race, it seemed like, you know, especially that start when he got the penalty at the very beginning of the race for the uh, – move that he made which i was caught thought was that it was kind of an iffy call anyway because you looked at the fifth and sixth starters and they were all sorts of squirrely before the they got to the stripe too but uh it was an interesting one but i think you know with magnuson in that car give him a little bit of time that car should be able to be competitive but definitely a heartbreaker today that they didn't end up pulling it away well you know you say that but i don't think the problem with that team has ever been pace or even consistency. Um, I agree with that. You know, you look at Daytona, they were in a winning position even, looking like they would be able to battle for the win at the Rolex 24. They have a tire go down with five minutes to go. Sebring mm. looks like they're going to be in a winning position as well. They get hit by the, I think it was a 25 BMW um, at the end of that race. Scott Dixon was driving the car at the time, I think. And uh, that was the end of that run here. You know, at least they were going to be able to salvage a podium, right? Well, nope, they have to pit. They're one of the one of two cars that has to pit for fuel uh, and they end up finishing fifth. Now, I actually wonder if they would have been able to make it on fuel because the thing that I won't understand is that the 55 Mazda team seems so insistent that they weren't going to be able to make it on fuel unless they were fuel saving extremely hard. Like they were going to have to be coasting into a lot of these corners to even have a chance of making it. And 
it looked like the 10 and the 31 from the restart were sort of just treating it as if they were going to have to pit. Um, you know, maybe 10 minutes to go, you sell the 31 trying to save fuel a little bit. They started falling back a little bit. But the 10, I mean, I didn't see any huge pace fall off with the number 10 car until maybe two laps to go, which is when they started considering, hey, maybe we can make this to the end. So I'm starting to wonder, just based on that alone, if all of the DPI teams would have been able to make it. I mean, I don't have access to any of the data that the teams do, unfortunately. I don't even have access to the stint overview, which is really making me upset um, because that would have been fantastic for this case. Um, but all in all, one thing I didn't mention is that it was very close at the end of the race between the number 10 and the number 31, only 0.3 seconds at the finish. And it looked like Nazar was maybe going to have a chance to get him going into, oh man, what, what what's that corner called? Uh, Thunder Valley, I think it is. Um, I think I'm right with that one. Uh, and got stuck behind a GTD car that really just cost them a chance. Mid-Ohio, obviously you have to set up your passes if you're going to want to have a shot at successfully completing them. And um looked like they just got caught a little bit there and weren't quite expecting it. So just a little bit of a, uh, just losing that race by a little bit for the 31 car. I think maybe another lap, well, actually another lap, and I wonder who would have run out of fuel and who would have been able to make it. But I don't think that number 10 car was going to make it another mile on on racing pace uh, with the amount of fuel that they had in that car. Anyways, uh, let's see if I can quickly pull up the championship results here. I'm not too prepared here. <laughs> um, but next race for IMSA um, will be at Belle Isle. Uh, and that will be at the beginning of June, which now will be featuring the GTLM class as well because GT the GTE cars will not be making the trek over to Le Mans until the end of August. Or the middle of August, I should say. All right, here we go. Championship points. Perfect. That's what I was looking for. Um, all right, championship. Or why? Oh, here we go. So the number 10 car, unsurprisingly, uh, is the uh, championship leader right now uh, with the win at Daytona and at Mid-Ohio. Followed by the 55 car. Now they have a deficit of 55 points, 1,070 points to 1,015. Got to remember IMSA's new points system, which is vastly different from what it was last year. You say 55 points, and you'd think that that's you know the the uh, number 10 car already has the championship locked up, but not quite. I mean, you, that's pretty much the equivalent of what would have been five points in any other season. So uh, you know, looking at that. Uh, certainly still a fight across the top three. We have the number five team, actually, uh, JDC, in third place in the points with that win at Sebring. Um, and then just going down the rest, just going through the rest of the top five, we have the 31 in fourth place and the number 60 in fifth. And uh, other classes, other classes. I guess I'll just go over LMP3 because it is... Uh, most practical they were one of the classes in this race uh the number 74 riley motorsports 
uh, Ligier with 715 points over the 54 Core Autosport with 690. A rare mistake, actually, from Colin Braun at Mid-Ohio going off in the final turn. Uh, and end up, he ended up hitting the barriers, which damaged the car a little bit. You don't usually see mistakes like that from Colin Braun. Uh, so that's just a little bit notable. And the 91 Riley Motorsports Ligier and third in that championship with 646 points. So you have roughly 70 points separating all of those cars. And finally, GTD, as soon as I can easily scroll through 15 pages of IMSA points, the uh, number 96 Turner Motorsports BMW, again with their win at Mid-Ohio, extended, or I guess secured the lead in that championship at 920 points. Seven points behind will be the 23 Heart of Racing Aston Martin uh, 913 points, and then the 16 Wright Motorsports Porsche at 874 points. So, as I said, Detroit up next for most of these teams. Um, and Watkins Glen with a double header actually after that, with the endurance six hour race and then the two hour and 40 minute uh, race on the 4th of July weekend, I think it will be. Uh, and then Lime Rock Park, Road America, WeatherTech Raceway, Long Beach. VIR and um, Road, Road Atlanta. I almost said Road America again. So I think that's that's everything covered for IMSA. And the last thing I want to go over here, because we're an hour and 20 into this episode, is the Monaco Grand Prix, which is happening this weekend. I think we're all so accustomed to that race happening on Memorial Day weekend, the same morning as the Indy 500. Um, I've always loved waking up bright and early on that day, 8 a.m., nice and early for a uh, for a nice full day of motorsports. Not this year. Well, I guess it's still going to be a full day of motorsports. We're going to have Indy qualifying in the afternoon. But the Monaco Grand Prix will be this weekend. Uh, the point race right now is still very high between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. Uh, Hamilton has been able to pick up a win at the past two races now at uh, Portimao and at Spain. We weren't actually able to recap Spain because we didn't have a podcast last week, but I don't want to dive into it just because I feel like it's already, you know, in the past at this point. Um, but yeah, Lewis Hamilton was able to pick up the past two wins. Historically, a track like Monaco would be a track that suits Red Bull, uh, Red Bull Racing. Um, you know, usually we associate Red Bull Racing with a car that handles very well. They have generally one of the best chassis in the field. They have those beauty aerodynamics from Adrian Newey, um, who just seems to be an aerodynamics witch when it comes to Formula One cars. Um, but interestingly enough, it seems like the tables have almost turned in recent races, and Mercedes has the better car throughout the twisty bits, and Red Bull and Honda have the faster car in the straightaways. Joe, I don't know if you've noticed that as well, um, but that's something that I picked up, I guess, starting at the Portimao race weekend, and something that certainly might play a factor as we go into Monaco this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I, I look back to Bahrain because Max Verstappen very well could have been, would have been very uh, awesome to see him win the Bahrain Grand Prix, but he was caught out by the difference in speed between the Mercedes and the Hondas at that point in time in the aerodynamics of the Red Bull versus Mercedes. Lewis very quickly caught up and was able to make a pass on Max at the very ending of the first race of the season and take that top step of the podium. Max won at Amola, obviously, and which is 
kind of a, a nice mix of some aerodynamically important parts of the track where it's, it's important to have a good car that handles well with aerodynamics of faster corners, slower corners and intermediates. And then obviously it also has some long stretches as well. You go to Portimao in Spain and then you mentioned it, it kind of switches around, but I don't know. I mean, I think the Hondas are still a little off of the Mercedes and I, I just think the Mercedes all around have a better car. I mean, it, obviously we talk about aerodynamics and we talk about the engine and those are very crucial parts of the vehicle, but there's a lot of little things that go into a race car, you know, transmission and, and other smaller parts and what you're building your car out of and the turbulence off of the vehicle and, and little tiny things that obviously, like you said, Adrian Newey has been very good at, but Mercedes seems to be having the upper hand now. I would, I would love to see Max Verstappen, you know, take a fight to Lewis Hamilton, uh, get the win at Monaco. That would be really great to see him get that and get some points and try to challenge up at the top step to maybe become the world champion for the first time over Lewis taking eight, which no disrespect to Lewis. He's a great driver, but, oh, you know, we like a good fight. I, th I feel like Red Bull came out swinging and they were a little short on Mercedes to be competitive with them. And over the last few races, obviously Valtteri Bottas has had some ups and downs on his own. But um, if you look at what Perez has been able to slowly catch up and I think Verstappen's slowly showing a little less and less, I think, to Lewis. Um, it seems like overall, amongst those four drivers, Perez, Verstappen, Bottas, Hamilton, it's kind of coming together. They're kind of meshing into a group. But it's it's tough to stop Lewis and Mercedes when they start swinging and getting out in front like they are starting to do now, winning two races in a row. And while the podium has been the same uh, in Portugal and Spain, um, I hope not to see more of the same just for the sake of some excitement, but I don't know. I, obviously, Adrian Newey put, puts a lot of really great work in and has a great history with aerodynamics of race cars, but I, I do think it's it's a little behind where they might want to be right now, especially going into Monaco, which is one of, if not the single most important race on the schedule for aerodynamics, but, you know, it, it kind of gets to be a one-lane show and it's all strategy in the end and obviously Christian Horner is very good at strategy Bill Wolf, um, is too so I, I don't know I you know the car I think at Monaco while it's it's very important you know the aerodynamics of it I think by the end of the day strategy and driver can make it happen so you know maybe it, it's kind of an ebb and flow maybe the car is going to be a little better for Max and they can get some good strategy together but I, I don't know. I'm mean, just excited to watch it. You know, obviously it's not the weekend of the 500 for the first time in a long time. And since I've been going to the Indy 500 with my dad since 2013, I've been doing that and not being able to watch the Monaco Grand Prix. So I'm just excited in the first place that I get to watch the race. Right. And I would, you know, qualifying for this race more than any other this season is going to be crucial. I'm trying to think of any team that might have a slight advantage with qualifying trim I mean, you look back and the teams seem just as equally matched as they would be in race condition. I mean, I think Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes certainly have something very promising in qualifying. Um, Lewis is certainly no slouch at Monaco in recent years. Um, 
you know, it's just so hard to make a prediction going into this one because everything in history's sake makes you want to say, yes, Red Bull's probably going to have the advantage at this weekend. But this season has been so backwards in, in what we've been become accustomed to in recent years, as I'd mentioned with Red Bull seeming a little bit faster on the straightaways and Mercedes maybe being quicker in the corners that um, it's just too hard for me to make a prediction right now. I'm sort of with you. I'd love to see Max Verstappen be able to crawl back a couple of points or claw back a couple of points at this race. Um, keep that title fight alive. I mean, it's important for people to remember that even though Lewis has won the past two races, um, you know, that, that fight at the top of the championship right now is still super close because every single race that Lewis has been able to win, Max has been able to finish second. All it really takes is, you know, either one of those drivers, either Lewis making a mistake, you know, Monaco is not a forgiving track. I think every single person knows that you make a mistake at Monaco and you know, you don't really get a second chance. You're pretty much retired. You're out of the race. Um, so I think for both of those drivers, it's going to be a lot of pressure going into this one. If either one retires, I mean, you could see all the work that Mercedes and Lewis have been working for in the past few races with those, with those victories, you know, it could all evaporate if they make a mistake and find themselves in a wall. And likewise for Red Bull and Verstappen as well. Um, couple other teams that we might have to keep an eye on. I mean, McLaren, I think has been impressing recently. Um, Lando Norris actually almost got the pole position. Uh, where was Lando almost got the pole position at Imola. Um, and it's just been impressing for the rest of the season and recent races as well. Um, perhaps we see maybe some surprise in qualifying again. I mean, again, qualifying matters here a lot. If you see any team put on a surprise qualifying result, I think that that's going to be very good for them going into the race weekend. Um, so, you know, I keep an eye out for McLaren as well. They're running that golf livery, that, um, one-off golf livery, which I think everybody's seen by now looks fantastic. Um, but yeah, I don't think I have too much to go over, uh, in terms of a Monaco GP preview. I think we've hit everything we need to talk about. Uh, one thing I've seen in the chat get brought up a couple times, and I certainly have said it before, and I still hold this true, is that Mercedes is a team where if you're going to have an advantage on them, you need to find the advantage and then hold that advantage on them. Because that's a team where if you win one race on them at the beginning of the season, they're going to be fighting three times as hard as you to try to find that advantage back. And, you know, I've I've brought this up before. We've seen it with Ferrari in years past where Ferrari has been able to hold on to the points lead even until almost the middle of the season uh, with Sebastian Vettel a couple seasons ago. And then, you know, Mercedes in the middle of the season, you just, you fire them up and they're going to really fight, fight you hard for those uh, points. They're going to fight hard to get those points back. And, um, you know, I think we might be seeing a repeat this season. It's just a question of how dedicated Red Bull is going to be to uh, preventing them from from really gaining back on them because I think at the beginning of the season, it's safe to say that Red Bull had the better car and uh, we're just going to have to see where it goes from now on. Anyways, I think, I think we've covered everything there uh, for this episode. I, somebody put a hot prediction in the chat. Let's just read this off real quick. Hot prediction from JT33396 says Verstappen doesn't win, but neither does Hamilton. Um, Certainly, I think that that's a possibility. You know, Valtteri Bottas and Sergio Perez, I think, would be the two drivers that get brought up after that. Um, both of them have been making some mistakes on their own this season, though. So maybe, you know, maybe this is that race where 
uh, Ferrari is able to claim another victory for the first time since 2019, or maybe this is a race where, you know, McLaren pulls off a huge upset. We'll have to see. Um, but again, going to say once more, we're going to be recapping all of that in next week's episode where we're going to have a lot to go over. So tune in next week if you want to see all of that stuff. Anyways, I do want to say another thank you to Mr. Joe Donahue for joining me on this episode. I have linked his channel in the chat. Go check it out. Go subscribe to him. Uh, if you've learned anything this episode, I hope that it's been, he has some great insight and, uh, certainly you can find some more of that over on his channel. I know he has some formula one content that's been sitting on his hard drive forever that I've told him to upload. So hopefully he does that. And, uh, I'd highly advise going to subscribe to his channel because he's provided some great insight in this episode. And I think that he is a worthwhile YouTuber to check out, uh, for his own stuff. I also would link my Discord if I had quick access to it. Let's see if I can get that while I do uh, some closing regard or some closing remarks here. But Joe, I'm gonna give you the floor here. Do you have anything to say uh, just as we wrap this episode up? Well, um, I definitely think you know, looking at F1, you could you know, there's always the possibility of another 1996 episode with uh, the Liget winning. Um, maybe somebody, you know, further back in the field could pull something off. It's the type of track. I think if there's anywhere you're going to see a mid pack car, get a chance to compete at the front. Um, it's pronounced Liget. Uh, I caught that from the mid Ohio portion of this race. Um, that's okay. Uh, you gave me a nice kick in the pants to get that formula one content out there. So I guess, yeah, you guys might want to check that stuff out in the future. And I'm going to throw one final quick hot take into this video because I want to get it online as quickly as possible. My way too early pick for the Indy 500 is Graham Rahal. Hmm. You know, I don't think that that's too out wildish, but uh, I'll be sharing all of my predictions and all of that good stuff in next week's episode uh, after we have some more practice insight and the qualifying results as well. So I'd say tune in next week. Joe might be back again uh, for that episode as well. Maybe we'll have myself, Joe, and Kyle. Uh, again, sort of just a fluid situation as we go through this month, but hopefully when June rolls around and Kyle's back home, um, we will uh, we'll be on a much more consistent uh, basis for this podcast because, again, you know, not to make any excuses, but it's been a little bit hectic over the past couple of weeks. Um Oh, and then just one last thing, because I saw it in the chat. Somebody asked, no preview for NASCAR at Coda. Um, honestly, I just got to be honest, I have some grudges with NASCAR. Um, not that I don't want to talk about it on the podcast. Uh, it's just that I haven't paid attention to NASCAR as much as I really could have in the past couple of years to the point where I'd be knowledgeable enough to talk about it. So generally speaking, I don't talk about NASCAR too much on this podcast. Um Unless it somehow ties into some other series, in which case I'll bring it up sometimes. Um, but generally, I sort of stray away from it just because I don't consider myself knowledgeable enough on that topic. And I think there's plenty of other podcasts out there that are much more uh, knowledgeable when it comes to NASCAR that are more worth checking out than this one. Anyways, uh, an hour and a half, a little bit over in. And that's going to be enough to wrap this up for another episode of the, of the Rain Race Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hope to see you next week on Monday, hopefully at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time for another episode of the Rain Race Podcast. Take care. Have a great night. <laughs>